Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So yeah, I do this from time to time, um, doing uh, just opening to uh, more of a conversation, particularly when I uh, don't have uh, time to prepare a talk and I've... <laughs> but there's a part of me, you know, when I give, uh, often I, you know, I give a talk each week when I'm here and often I feel um, somewhat remiss that I don't leave time for, uh, for Q&A, which is... Um, partly because I just don't know when to stop. Um, but um, I love actually just going back and forth and talking about practice. So uh, it's fun for me to do that. And uh, the last three days I've been in meetings, uh, Spirit Rock meetings, all day. And... Uh, um, Actually, yesterday afternoon, I had some space. I came home for a few hours, but just caught up on email, and then I taught last night. Um, and today was like straight on from early morning. I got home at 6, no, 6.30, and just closed my eyes for a few minutes uh, and uh, quickly had some dinner, and I'm, I was here. Um, so uh, this is a good time to to just have some conversation, but I thought I'd offer a little bit of a teaching um, to start, especially since um, this is um, the equinox. We just just made it through winter, and we're officially in spring. Isn't that good, huh? And uh, the equinox, which I think was yesterday, um, is all about the balance between uh, light and dark. So I thought I'd just first share this teaching and then say a few words. I can find it. And uh, let's see, now where is it? Here it is. This is a famous discourse. Mm. And if you don't know this little book, it's a really handy, neat little book called Teachings of the Buddha, a Shambhala pocket classic. There's a larger version in blue uh, that Jack Cornfield and Gil Fransdell put together, kind of like the Buddha's greatest hits. Um, and this is one of the, one of the really... Um, helpful, practical uh, discourses. Once the Buddha lived near Rajgaha on Vulture Peak. At that time, while the venerable Sona lived alone and secluded in the cool forest, the thought occurred to him of those disciples of the Blessed One who are energetic, I am one. Yet my mind has not found freedom. He's energetic, and his mind is energetic. 
busy. <clears throat> and he is very um, earnest in his practice. He really gives wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly to his practice. Now, the Blessed One, perceiving in his own mind the Venerable Sona's thoughts, left Vulture Peak, and as speedily as a strong man might stretch his bent arm or bend his stretched arm, he appeared in the cool forest before the Venerable Sona. And he said to the Venerable Sona, Sona, actually I want to just interrupt, and when I said busy, I, I shouldn't say that. Uh, that. That's not accurate. Not that his mind was energetic. His um, energy for practice was, was really strong. Um, Sona that's pretty cool for the Buddha to say, oh, wait, somebody has a, has a problem. It's like the old Batman. You know, you kind of see, oh, where is, oh, he needs some assistance. Well, anyway, mm. Sona, did not this thought arise in your mind of those disciples of the Blessed One who are energetic, I am one, yet my mind has not found freedom? Mm. The Buddha supposedly had psychic powers too, which is not, mm, it might seem far-fetched if this, is, uh, if, if this is kind of new to you or it seems a little bit much, but uh, it's very possible to develop powers and psychic powers as well. In fact, when you... If you read the Vasudhi Magga, I've mentioned this here before, the Vasudhi Magga's path of purification about developing the mind, uh, first with developing concentration and then going to insight. Very matter-of-factly, it says, you concentrate the mind this way, this, 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 and this, and you can uh, know past lives. You do this, this, and this, and this, and you can... Um, uh, walk through walls, uh, this, this, and you can materialize in different ways. Very dry. It's not like, oh my God, you'll never believe this. It's like, you do this, and the mind can go into a different reality. So uh, this is not something just uh, unique to the Buddha, but he had these psychic powers. <clears throat> you can... Just believe what is useful and put the rest aside. If you don't go for that, it doesn't matter at all. But here's the story. So, uh, is that what you... Is, did your mind say uh, that you're one who, are, who is energetic and, and yet my mind has not found freedom? Yes, Lord. Tell me, Sona, in earlier days, were you not skilled in playing string music on a lute? Yes, Lord. And tell me, Sona, when the strings of your lute were too taut, was then your lute tuneful and easily playable? Certainly not, O oh Lord. And when the strings of your lute were too loose, was then your lute tuneful and easily playable? Certainly not, O oh Lord. But when, Sona, the strings of your lute were neither too taut nor too loose, but adjusted to an even pitch, did your lute then have a wondrous sound and was it easily play, playable? Certainly, Lord. Similarly, Sona, 
if energy is applied too strongly, it will lead to restlessness. And if energy is too lax, it will lead to lassitude. Therefore, Sona, keep your energy in balance and balance the spiritual faculties. And in this way, focus your attention. Yes, Lord, replied the Venerable Sona in ascent. Afterward, the Venerable Sona kept his energy balanced, balanced the spiritual faculties, and in this way focused his attention. And then the Venerable Sona, living alone and secluded, diligent, ardent, and resolute, soon realized here and now, through his own direct knowledge, that unequaled goal of the holy life. Mm. As often the stories end that way. Um, so this is the famous parable of the lute. And particularly since we're here at Equinox, the day of balance, uh, it's appropriate to remember how the meditation practice functions best when there is a balanced attitude, not too tight, not too striving and intense, not too lax, but just the right amount of energy. And the meditation practice is also a kind of um, training ground to get balance in your mind and in your life as well. And I say this, I thought it was kind of ironic after going through three days of meetings that I had just a, you know, a, a little while. I didn't have a chance to really move my body these last few days, but that was what was happening in the last, uh, in these days. But how important it is to have balance in our life as well as in our attitude and in the meditation. I'll talk a little bit about meditation first. Uh, it says, balancing the, fi- the spiritual faculties. There are five spiritual faculties, if you're not so familiar with, with that teaching. The five, faith, energy, mindfulness, um, concentration, and wisdom. And they are um, two pairs that need to be in balance. Mindfulness is the balancing factor, but faith and wisdom need to be in in balance. If you have too much faith but not enough wisdom, it becomes um, blind faith. If you have too much wisdom that is analysis, but not a heartful kind of trust and faith, it can lead to uh, skepticism, as I said. But those, the heart and the mind need to be in balance. The faith, putting one's heart upon, and the wisdom, a clear discernment. And then energy and concentration need to be balanced as he said to Sona. So this is a, a list of balancing qualities. And the same can be said in the uh, 
seven factors of enlightenment. It's a list all about balance. The seven factors, there's mindfulness, and then there's, I think we just talked about this a couple of weeks ago, there's the energizing qualities of investigation and energy and joy, which is a kind of keen interest in things. And then there's the stilling qualities of calm, concentration, equanimity. And a lot of practice is seeing how we can bring both the energizing and the stilling qualities into balance. Because out of that balance, the mind becomes free. When you're practicing in the meditation, this is something to to keep on um, checking in if somehow you're either feeling a bit too tight or a bit too gone, lax. Of course, gone, when you're gone, there's not much you can do about it. But if, you're, if there's not a kind of um, intention to be present, then you're just kind of you know, lost in la-la land. And the only thing that you need to do when you realize you've come, you've gone off, is to come back with a certain kind of commitment and wakefulness. If you're dozing off, okay, you brighten up. Take some breaths, open your eyes, sit up, uh, stand, just so you bring about that balance from the, the... sluggishness. If you're really antsy, agitated, and restless, you need to just chill out, relax. Take some deep breaths also as a way to channel the energy and simply relax. You might open up to sounds as a way to create some space in the mind or do some loving-kindness practice as a way to uh, to um, cool out the mind a bit. Whatever it is that will support you, you're just checking out and seeing what is needed. Now, as far as mm, tuning into a particular object in the meditation, one analogy that um, I love that uh, Upandita, a Burmese master, used to give. He said, suppose you're connecting with the breath, it could be anything, or sensation, whatever object, but let's say the breath. He had this image of um, a fork um, spearing a vegetable, say some broccoli. Right? And uh, if, you, if you're trying to eat a piece of broccoli and you take a fork and you just dangle the tines above the, the broccoli you're not going to be able to spear it. That's, that's not a really a strong connection with what you're attending to. However, if you take the fork and smash it into the, the broccoli, it'll fall all over the place, and the plate will fall off, and you might hurt your hand. You're going too far in if you're trying to get too far in to the object and you're not really connecting. 
So the, the skill is connecting in a way that it sinks into the object, but it's not tight, it's not tense, but you're connecting with it. In the same way also, if what you're attending to, there's a quality of struggle. Suppose you've got a, you know, a discomfort in your shoulder and you're paying attention to it, but you're struggling around it because you've been with it for a while. If you're spending too much energy trying to stay with something, again, that's not a balanced connection. So that's where you want to just back off a little bit. Struggle means need more space. But if you are um, not wanting to go near something because you're avoiding, then you might just say, okay, let's, let's connect with this. Because often when you do connect with it, then uh, it's not nearly as um, difficult to, uh, to attend to as we think. So you want to just find that balance, connecting and yet being spacious. That's why when I, I give the instructions often in the, the meditation, I say uh, to notice what's happening, letting it be here, and bringing a relaxed and interested awareness. Because that relaxed interest is the balance between those two. And uh, it's really all a practice of balance. It's just like learning to ride a bicycle, right? It's not that you get one amount of balance and that's how you do it. It's a continual dynamic system. So you want to be checking in and seeing, oh, okay, this is the course adjustment that's needed to meet this moment skillfully. Oh, just relax a bit. Oh, get a little bit more interested and alert. And in that sense... It's not even that you have to think much about it. It's like, what will help me really connect with this in a very uh, relaxed and uh, an interested way? So, I'll just stop here and uh, just open it up to any questions about the meditation practice or any Dharma questions. Um, You might just... Take a moment for uh, before we start, you, rather than waiting and hoping somebody else will ask something. Okay, just see if there's any um, anything about where you are in your practice right now that you would like to explore that might be useful for us. When I say your practice, I don't only mean your formal meditation practice, but uh, your practice in life, how you are meeting experience, where you might get stuck, where you are um, finding that uh, the practice is really supporting you. What's going on right now in your practice? What's your forward edge?
What are you learning these days? What would you like to go deeper into? Okay, so here, oh thanks Andrew. And uh, why don't you say your names as, as you go, so as you put your, uh, yeah, put it, and uh, put it, put the mic right to your lips too. Yeah. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Sergey. my second time here. Great, hi. Uh, my question is this, why... Do we practice? What is the goal? What are we trying to achieve? Thank mm. you. Mm. Okay. Well, before I answer, uh, let me ask you, why do you practice? End suffering. To end suffering. That's a good answer. I'll go with that. <laughs> 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 you know, there's, uh, I, I, that's what the Buddha said, and that's why he said to, to practice. There's suffering and there's the end of suffering. So that can be a really um, excellent motivation. However, I also want to put out that there's many different motivations to practice. And they can all be skillful ones. If for you it's to end suffering, doesn't get clearer and more to the point than that. Somebody else might be practicing to learn to love more, or to be um, to have their their true nature shine through, or to um, to learn to um, to be um, a clean vehicle for um, for the Dharma to shine through. Some people might have a lofty, the highest goals of awakening, enlightenment, whatever you want to talk about, however you want to say it. Some people might be starting to practice because they just want to be a little bit calmer or a little bit less caught up in their stress. So while having that very inspiring goal works for you, I find it helpful to really honor wherever you're at and see what is it that is motivating you to look more clearly at things. So there's not one right answer. In fact, it reminds me, there's a story in the time of the Buddha where the Buddha's, one of his cousins, when he came back to his hometown after he was enlightened and he was um, uh, sharing the teachings and all of his, uh, the the village and uh, a lot of his relatives were swept up by his the inspiration and joined the order and became monks 
and uh, no, not nuns at that time. Nuns came later, but became monks. And this one guy, uh, in a in a moment of inspiration, decided to become a monk and leave his not only his uh, lay life, but his girlfriend that he was completely passionately you know crazy about uh, behind. And he started practicing, and all he could do was think about his girlfriend. Right? And no matter what he did, he just was obsessed, particularly with lustful thoughts, as, as the story goes. And finally, uh, he goes to the Buddha, and uh, he says, you know, I just, I just have to get back to my girlfriend. You know, she's just so great. And the Buddha gives him a vision of this magnificent celestial nymph. Like, completely, you know, beyond the beyond in the celestial realms. And the Buddha says, uh, what do you think of that? (laughs) And the guy, you know, how, how how does this nymph compared to your uh, to your girlfriend and the guy says wow oh my god you know i won't give you the exact response cuz it's too out there but he says uh, this one is a lot better okay and the buddha says um, if you practice really hard and become fully enlightened I promise you 500 celestial nymphs. The guy was very motivated, (laughs) practiced like his hair was on fire, probably, hopefully found some balance in there because he did become enlightened. And as soon as he became enlightened, he realized the absurdity of wanting 500 celestial nymphs. And so he absolved the Buddha of his promise. That's to say, whatever your motivation, if you practice and look for yourself and see the truth and wake up, the motivation will change over time. And whatever inspires you to take a very sincere, wholehearted look for yourself at what the truth is. Let that inspiration um, guide you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Jenny. Uh, two things. One of them I was thinking about why I practice, and one moment that happened uh, about a week ago was, um, not a week ago, yesterday, <laughs> sorry, that's <laughs> how so much I've been practicing, um, <laughs> was I was at the dentist's office, and I really hate going to the dentist so much, and I was dreading it. I had to get two cavities filled, and, and um, it had been a really hard day before that. And I was sitting there, and it was just becoming really, really awful, and um, I was so stressed. My whole body was tense, 
and I was like hating the dentist. Um, he's a really nice guy, but um, anyway, um, and I just remember there's something clicked, and I was like, "What if you sent Meta to the dentist and to your tooth?" You know, and right. um, it was totally transformative. I mean, I was still in the dentist getting my cavity filled, but um, but I like took this deep breath, and I felt myself detach from the experience, mm. and like I really spacious way and um and i just started sending myself my tooth and the dentist meta and it completely changed my dental experience Mm. um so i think that's partly why i practice you know is to um is to relieve suffering like on this real gritty level too and um, provide some spaciousness between me and what experience i'm having and i don't know and it comes up and i think the more i do it the more it comes out in ways and in smaller moments that is really helpful mm-hmm. um so uh just to respond to your question mm-hmm. there um can help you with the dentist's office um <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing the question i had was um i've always kind of spent my spiritual connection is, has been more outdoors and hiking and Sometimes I just have a really hard time. Okay, a lot of times I've had a really hard time just forcing myself to sit on the cushion at home. Here, it's, it's, there's a routine to it. Um, and I was just wondering if you have just some tips for when you're just, like, not wanting to sit, and which for me is often <laughs> I'd rather go for a walk pretty much always. It just I don't know, thoughts about, about that tension, about just sitting um, sometimes just sounds like the most horrible thing to do. So anyway, if you have any thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, one is um, you might just start sitting outside too when you go out in nature. I mean, why not? In Tibetan practice, that's usually the way that it's suggested. You you go on a mountaintop and get the big view uh, and they often sit with their eyes open. So you're just kind of taking in that that spaciousness that way, um, but sitting outside in nature, and that's what the Buddha did too. He said, you know, there are trees and roots of trees, and sit down and uh, and see, and and letting nature open you up is a really fine way to do it. So that's one one piece, and and certainly here in Berkeley you can get away with it, right? If you're you know. Meditating. Oh, somebody who's meditating here in Berkeley. Uh, But the other piece is just what you said about the dentist. What struck me as you were saying it is one thought changed from real contraction towards the dentist, towards your tooth, and something in you there was a wisdom in you that said, oh, what if I do metta? And that shifted your relationship to being in that chair, being in that seat, which is one of the, the great gifts that practice shows you. Whatever our relationship to what's happening we have a choice if we can be conscious enough to shift our thought about the experience so that it's, um, it affects our whole attitude. 
So for instance, if you have the idea sitting at home, oh my God, I can't stand sitting at home, okay, or sitting there. What, what, let's just explore it for a moment. What, what is the, what is the, um, the aversion? What's the unpleasantness at the thought of, of sitting when that thought comes? Take the, uh, take the mic. And you're, I'm, I'm not just wanting to put you on the spot. You're sharing probably for a lot of people. Anybody else have, a, have some resistance to sitting? As, as one, uh, one Tibetan master said, uh, meditation practice is like having a love-hate relationship with your zafu, with your cushion. Yeah. 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 So what, when you have that thought, what, what comes to mind? Well, I think first things, uh, first things that come up are excuses. I'm busy. I have things to do. You know, I, I don't have time for this. Um, and then if I sit with it a little more, it's like, yeah, maybe I don't want to be present for what would come up if I sat there, or maybe I don't want to be fully present for myself, you know, because I'm, I don't know, I wouldn't be happy Con. with what came up, or I don't and know. what what might come up? Um, probably a knowing about something or a deeper connection to myself that would maybe guide me in a way that I am resistant to, or um, maybe just quiet, <laughs> I don't know, just being present with myself, maybe feelings that are coming up. I've had a lot of loss in the past couple months, so mm-hmm. I think just like maybe not wanting to feel grief or, you know, um, anxieties or things like that. So just not wanting to feel my feelings. Maybe. Okay. All right. And, and uh, thank you. And that's, this is a very common, uh, either conscious or unconscious motivation Oh my goodness! If I really get quiet, I'll feel what's going on there. Now, when you have felt what's going on there, uh, when you've not run away and just touched it, um, having some feelings there, what's um, what's that been? What's that been like? Yeah. It's very personal. Um, <laughs> um, what's that been like? I mean, I don't know. I'm a very emotive person, and uh, I don't know. I think it. What's that been like? So ask your question one more time. <laughs> so, wait, uh, ha- have there been times when you've actually felt your feelings, and it's been okay? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end, it always is okay. It's just um, overwhelming sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Grief or anxiety. I think those emotions, at least for me, are 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 overwhelming to think about experiencing. Maybe I, I'm probably not even thinking about it consciously. It's just okay. Yeah, I'll go deal with that. Or or I tend to also just want to move my body when I have a lot of feelings. So mm-hmm. sitting in it mm-hmm. feels like I can't release it. Mm-hmm. Like if I go running or hiking, I can like get it out of my body physically too. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's part of my re- response to be active, maybe okay. versus sitting. So that the, there's there's a couple of things there. First of all, when you do have a lot of energy and you're sitting on some feelings, it can be a very um, wise thing to do to to actually release some of those 
feelings, going for a walk or doing some exercise or doing some yoga, or it might be a signal that your body is saying, uh, you need to discharge something here, which would be a good thing to do maybe before you sit and, and not, rather, not say, okay, uh, if I, it's either sit or you know, I'm, I'm blowing it. I'm messing up my spiritual life if I don't sit. Don't believe that. It's like, oh, I'm, I've got a lot of stuff here, a lot of feelings. You can go for a mindful walk or exercise like that, very skillful, or do some mindful stretching. But uh, if when you're ready to meditate, if you can hold, hold it, just like you shifted going to the, the dentist and saying, oh, what if I have... Uh, uh, an attitude of whether it's metta or compassion. Uh, what if I give this to myself as a nurturing experience so that when there's feelings there, you are holding it, you're giving a chance to hold your feelings with real compassion and have that um, that image as a way to really uh, connect with yourself in a very healthy way. And rather than sit for 45 minutes or, you know, oh my God, if I handle, if I stay with this, it's going to be too much. Even for 10 minutes of kindness so that the meditation becomes something that you're giving to yourself and giving to yourself in the spirit of really um, taking care of all the churning that's going in there. And metta might be a, a good, uh, an actual practice, or at least bringing a spirit of metta to, in it, uh, to it. it. It can possibly be very much like um, the dentist uh, experience. Um, if, you, if, if the meditation is something that you're doing as this chore, as this heavy-duty assignment, you know, that you can check off and be a good boy or a good girl, say, okay, I did it. I mean, that can be useful if you like being a good boy or a good girl and just uh, and doing what, what feels right. But when it shifts to something that you're giving yourself, that you're, you're doing it out of a kindness to yourself, then your whole um, reason for sitting and relationship to the, to the meditation is different. So however you can have that shift as something that's a gift to yourself rather than something that you're doing to yourself, um, trust that and listen inside for how that shift can come about. And listen to your wisdom of either discharging the energy or doing it for a really short time so that it's just an exercise in, uh, in kindness. Hi, James. Um, my name is Philip. And uh, last week you were reading out of a Urena Suda out of this mm, yeah, massive yeah. tome, 1,600 yeah. pages, I think you said, right, yeah, right. new publication, right? Right. And what came to mind was... Uh, for someone who espoused uh, a noble silence and quietude, the Buddha was very verbose. Mm. 
Um, and, and I also was thinking that uh, when he was alive, there were no digital recordings, no analog recordings, not even pen and paper. Right, so uh, for the first couple hundred years, my understanding is it was an oral tradition. And when you involve humans, uh, it's open to perception and interpretation. And so all these words that, like you, for instance, that study, you've given a big chunk of your life to studying these words, and a lot of people have, um, he may have not even said what they say he said. And so how do we know... um, and is it even important? But, you know, to, that's where my mind goes, where it went, you know, when you were reading this. And I've thought this, you know, and same with the Bible, you know. But, but that's possibly the Word of God. But uh, anyway, I'd like you to speak to that, if you would. Yeah, we, we don't know. Um, but we do know that some of those words are pointing to um, genuine liberation. That's where the Buddha said, don't believe anything, including the words that you might hear from me. Look for yourself and see what's true and what leads to suffering and what doesn't lead to suffering. There are some things in the, uh, in the Pali Canon that do not, seem like they're coming from a different voice, a different uh, mindset than others. There are some things that I, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't read to you uh, because it's just kind of like saying, what is that about? Uh, and there are some that really stretch the imagination, although what the idea is that you have a suspension of disbelief if it's a kind of cosmic, you know, cosmology. <clears throat> but <clears throat> there, are, there are some things that, uh, that clearly, um, at least in this day and age, uh, don't inspire uh, because they're either uh, misogynist or uh, a narrow view or whatever. Uh, and uh, what I do with the Pali Canon is um, just really hear the ring of truth um, and see what is leading to, to genuine liberation. A lot of it, a lot of it has a particular, has, is, what can I say? Uh, it's an amazing understanding of how the mind and the heart work and how they're free. So I'd say look for yourself and see what rings true and, and what doesn't. In the, uh, in the oral tradition, one of the things that, uh, that marked it is there's a lot of repetition. So if you read some of the, uh, a lot of the, the discourses, um, the Buddha whether he did this or this was the style that that made it easy to remember, there'd be a passage, and then there'd be, this is in a discourse, and then the passage would be repeated again and again and again um, in various different ways in one discourse. So it was a kind of um, aid 
to, uh, to remembering. Uh, but we don't know. 500 years, it, you're right, 500 years it was from the time that he passed away until things were written down. So we don't know. But we do, we do know that, oh, this can lead to genuine freedom. So I take wherever the wisdom is and, uh, and practice, put it into practice. Here, oh. oh, we'll get to you after. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I'm Bob. I've been trying to maintain a practice for several years now. I was raised in a very different religious tradition. Mm-hmm. And as much as I get from the Dharma and the practice, and I've been quietly stalking you for several years... <laughs> You've been what for several years? Quietly stalking you uh-huh. for several years. Okay. There's, yeah. a, there's somehow a sense of betrayal of mm. that tradition in being here. Mm. I wonder if you could address that. S- speak a bit more about betrayal. I was raised in a sort of absolutist tradition that this was the way and the only way. And I think like many people here, as I grew older, that wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. There was something missing there. Mm-hmm. And I found a lot of that here. And I guess there's sort of a cognitive dissonance between what I was taught and what I experienced. So is the betrayal to that um, that the traditions of my upbringing and but is the betrayal that you that you don't bel- that it's hard for you to accept that perspective but you're um and that you wish you could or what's the essence of betrayal i guess a sense of that i'm walking away from the traditions of my youth uh-huh and and did do those traditions inspire you? Yes, they do. And is there? I, I guess maybe it's the Western concept that religions are mutually exclusive. Yeah, they're not. They're all the way I see it. You know, I was I was raised uh, as as many of you know. I mentioned here before. I'm raised uh, in the Jewish tradition and there's a part of me that honors that heritage that really um, you know that's that's part of my identity on some level culturally and also after mm, after looking elsewhere I found you know I've I've since discovered there's some really beautiful, profound teachings that I wasn't exposed to when I was growing up that I really honor and respect. Um, And the way I see it, all spiritual traditions are pointing to what cannot be named, what cannot be described. Like in Judaism, the word God 
just saying this in the beginning class, the word God is a kind of placeholder for that which cannot be named. So the word God is, in my mind, not so different from the Dharma, or the word that I use within, in my own heart is the mystery. Uh, and they're all just, all the different traditions are fingers pointing to a moon. And if you get stuck on the fingers and saying, oh, that's, that's, the, that's my finger, you know, that's my favorite finger, you're missing, the, the teachings are pointing to the direct experience, whether you call it the God within or your Buddha nature or whatever or freedom. Um, so I don't see where you have to reject uh, anything. It's all the human mind trying to understand the incomprehensible. Uh, and I think there's a way that one can honor it all. The betrayal is more, you know, that, that might be something to explore how you can really honor and understand some of the, the, the gems in whatever spiritual tradition you were raised in and really um, be inspired by them. You can go back and see how, where the inspiration is and not have to reject it all. It doesn't have to be one thing or another. However, if there are things in that, that body of teachings that, um, that just uh, don't ring true for you, then uh, just like the Buddha said, take what's useful and, and leave, leave what's not. Um, but you don't have to reject it all. Every spiritual tradition is a spiritual tradition because it's touched many people in a very profound, deep way. And so why not take the, 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 the gems in that tradition and uh, see where they meet? As, as it said in uh, the Third Zen Patriarch, it says, uh, there is one Dharma, not many. Distinctions arise from the clinging needs of the ignorant. There's one Dharma. Uh, there is one natural law or way to understand or that, that life is is pointing us to. And all the distinctions, as the Buddha said, sp- looking and, and getting hung up on spiritual form is one of the one of the the fetters that keeps us from uh, from seeing the truth, including Buddhism, including Buddhism. It's just another form. So maybe there's a way that you can get beyond that and uh, see in your religion of birth uh, what inspires you and and incorporate that into your practice. Is this over here, Andrew? Maybe one last one, and then we should get going. Yeah, quick. 
Hi, I'm Charlie. Hi, Charlie. Uh, I'm, I'm from a sort of kindred path, but oftentimes when someone in the school is, uh, has a challenge, physical challenge, they will say to dedicate the practice, you know, holding this person. And, and coming from, uh, personally, I guess part of me, there's a certain hopelessness that feels, well, uh, even my, we, we live in a culture that's, you know, the, you know, it can do. So you pray to make someone better. And how there's a sort of, how does one hold that dedicating the practice? And uh, I think my personally, I don't think my prayer could have any positive or, or make them better. And I can appreciate the other thing of the subtle thing that's going on when you dedicate your practice to uh, something. I say I, I can't quite understand that how they you hold someone and maybe you wish they were healed, but. Uh, Whatever will happen. I mean, there's also a teaching from my mother, you know, que sera, sera, which sort of has a certain pessimistic sort of. Uh, I see. So you mean, how can you wish? May you be happy, or may you be free of suffering when things will just unfold as they as they do. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Well, you're you're first of all, you can hold it more than just you know. I hope this works. Um, rather than having having that as the you know as the the goal, oh, I hope this will heal them you 're wishing well as uh, as a um, an exercise in opening your own heart and just feeling how good it feels to wish them well, whatever happens happens, they will have their own unfolding karma and the equanimity practice goes along with wishing them well that they will have their own journey. You can hold it, however, that a healing <clears throat> can happen not just on a physical level, but that um, they will come to a healing whatever level uh, will bring them less suffering. And that can include in their passing, it can include in their coming to terms with their their physical challenges. There's lots of different levels of healing that can happen. So you're, you know, let go of the agenda and just um, wish for them uh, to be, uh, to have healing to whatever extent is possible, whether it's in the heart, in the mind, or in the body. And, and then whatever will be, will be. Because it's in that wishing well that you are uh, developing an open heart. But yeah, they have their own karma. As, as, as the equanimity practice says, what, uh, you are heir to your karma. Your happiness and unhappiness depends on your actions, not solely on my wishes for you. So you're kind of letting go of that responsibility. Okay. All Thank right. you. So let's uh, just just end with a very short uh, meta.
And if you have more questions, you can come on up. Just uh, wish yourself well and wish those around you well and wish all beings well as I want peace and happiness for myself. May all find happiness and peace on their journeys. May all learn to share their love well. May all see their true nature. And may our coming here together be of benefit to all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.